Okay, we're going to continue our studies in John's Gospel, Chapter 4. John's Gospel, Chapter 4. And the title of this message today is uh, Baptism of the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit. One of the reasons I chose to give it that title is because it's how the chapter begins. Uh, we have looked at this already in our studies. Uh, the devil is always trying to cause division because he knows that he has uh, a method uh, where we're very complimentary of, of uh, aiding him in that effort of causing division because of our nature. Uh, we are envious by nature. We're competitive by nature. And the devil is always trying to get our eyes on other people and compare ourselves with others rather than comparing ourselves with himself, with God himself. Uh, it's a big mistake to go through life competing with people, uh, trying to be something you're not, trying to be another person or like another person or do what other people do. That it's so simple to just be who you are. You can't be anything other than what you are. And you'll never amount to anything apart from what the Bible is presenting to us here actually in this chapter. Uh, you'll never be anything more than what you allow God to make you for his glory. Because it's him that worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. And all of us are different. Um, we have unique personalities. And it has pleased God to make us that way. With, with this distinctiveness in, in all of us. And I can't be you. You can't be me. Um, we can't be anybody other than who we are. And we ought to be happy with that. And thank God for that. And remember that we do not know anything without him and we cannot do anything without him. But the devil knows that that's not the way we are in our nature. And so he tries to drive, he tries to create division. And he was trying to do it with one of the more important symbolisms we find in the Bible, the, the symbolism of baptism, which uh, goes to the very center of what salvation is all about. It's death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. And um, so... The thing that I want to bring to our attention today without repeating too much of what was said already, um, the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus Christ, because he did not baptize anybody. Jesus Christ never did, and we talked about that the other day, so I'm not going to go back and repeat all that. But there is something that Jesus Christ baptized with that John the Baptist did not baptize with. And that's the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist even preached that. He said, I, I baptize with water. But the one that comes after me, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost with the Holy Spirit. And that's in part what we want to look at for just a moment because it's so critically important to understand this point. Um, I'd like for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. 
because there's an extremely important verse that's found there in this regard. It's Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. It would probably be in our interest to read verse 8 along with verse 9 because verse 8 says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, we are in the flesh and we can't do anything about it. This, the flesh nature is what he's talking about. He's talking about the old man, the old nature, the flesh nature. And we are in the flesh and the Lord is just putting a blanket statement on the whole human race. And he says, there's no way you can please me. Uh, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And so verse 9 is the... Uh, <clears throat> is the solution to this problem. But ye are not in the flesh, in verse 9, but in the spirit. If, big word, if, so be, that the spirit of God dwell in you. And then we have this statement, and it's tremendously important. Now, if any man have not, the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ in you, you're lost. You're not saved. I don't care how much you understand about the baptism in water. It doesn't matter how much you know about Christ. I mean, I'll tell you somebody that knows a lot about Jesus Christ. And that's Satan. And uh, we learn that if a man believes in God, you do well to believe in God. But James reminds us that the devil also believes and trembles. I mean, when it comes to knowing about Christ, there's no one in the universe that knows more about Christ than Satan. And he despises him. But he knows all about him. He knows this book up one side and down the other. He knows all about the prophecy. He despises every bit of it. He, he knows it so well, his method of and strategy of uh, deceiving man is by counterfeiting every word of God that he can that's how well he knows it and so um, <clears throat> the only person that can save us is the Lord Jesus Christ by baptizing us with the Holy Spirit and what that essentially means is receiving his life. As a matter of fact, the events in the New Testament that describe a, a particular time when this actually took place, it would be Pentecost. A number of years ago, it dawned on me that two of the greatest events in the New Testament is the cross of Calvary and Pentecost. And it began to dawn on me that the cross alone is not what saves a person. A lot of people think that it does. All you have to do is, is focus on that, the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. But his death on the cross did only one part of what is necessary to go to heaven. And what he did on the cross was not the complete picture 
of what God's program would involve. Now, some people would think that I'm getting into heresy with what I'm saying right now, but I'm not. And what we're studying right now will prove it. Think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for what reason? If you were to ask an audience of people, most everybody would say, and rightly so, that his death on the cross washed away all our sin. Sure did. Past, present, and future. But our problem goes a lot deeper than that. It sure does. It goes a lot deeper. Because you see, apart from Pentecost and what is taught concerning Pentecost, uh, we would sin again. And we would sin forever. Um, and so what is it that Pentecost does that actually prepares us to live in the presence of a holy God, being holy ourselves, unreprovable, un unblameable and unreprovable? How, how can that be? Well, if it was just the cross of Calvary that we focused on, that would not put us in that condition. So what is it that puts us in this condition that we would actually be, according to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight? Well, it's the gift of the new nature. And without the gift of the new nature, the very life of Christ dwelling in us, I mean, it was Paul that taught it. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And so the Lord wants us to really understand the full implications of his death upon the cross. His death upon the cross was not... Um, what would absolutely prepare us for heaven until we really actually understood how desperately we needed his life, his very life as our life. And that's where you receive the Holy Spirit. And so... Um, with those thoughts in mind, I, I hope that you'll remember in the future that the cross of Calvary and Pentecost are like two sides of one coin. You put them both together, and you've got one coin, and the Lord wants us to think about it that way. But he separated those two events by 50 days for the purpose of drawing special attention to it because he wants us to think about it in terms of the distinctiveness of those two events. Well, the first event takes care of the transgression against him, our crime against him. But that's not what prepares us for heaven. It's not what prepares us for dwelling in his presence forever. For that to take place, we have to have really what was symbolically taught in the birth of John the Baptist. We've got to be born again a second time from the dead holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. That is the significance of Pentecost.
And so I think when we sit down and talk with people and try to witness to people, we need to be aware of the distinctiveness between these two huge events recorded in the New Testament so that we can uh, encourage them further away from everything that they are in the flesh because those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Um, the only way we can please God is to have the life of Christ living in us both willing and doing of his good pleasure and that's the only way and the only way that's going to work is for the old man the old nature the flesh nature to die and of course that's the connection of Pentecost with the cross he died in our place and when we really understand that we understand God's hatred of our present life because the truth is we don't care a thing in the world about God not in our nature I'm going to tell you folks we get up every day with the same problem that we had before we ever, know Jesus, ever knew Jesus Christ and that is thinking about our will and our wants and what we want to do we're as self-centered to the core as we can be and there are very few people that will ever get off in a corner and get honest with God and say, Lord, you know, I've lived my whole life with myself as the center of it in terms of what I thought would make me happy with what I want to do in accordance with my will. There are very few people on the face of the earth that will ever sit down and get honest with God and say, Lord, I have wasted my entire life living for myself. And I want to prove more to myself than to you because you already know that I now understand what Christianity really is. And it's about dying to everything that I am. That I might live a life totally surrendered and dedicated to you. Because you created me for your glory, not for mine. For your will, not mine. For your purpose, not mine. And that's why the Lord said there'd be few that find it. There's a lot of people that name the name, the name of Christ, go to church every day, been baptized, done everything you can think of in the way of tradition, that have never gotten honest with God by getting alone with him with this book in your lap, thinking very carefully about what he's actually saying. And I'm telling you, most people do not want to know what he's actually saying. And the reason they don't is because if they can live in the shadows of what the Bible teaches rather than in the light, they can mix it up and somehow or other live a duplicitous life of what they want to do mixed in with what God wants you to do. That's confusion. And it's instability. The Lord said a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The Lord wants us to get it right. And realize what the Bible is actually teaching. It's a scary book. It's an all-in message. You're either all in it, or you may not be in it at all. You may end up being one of those people that says, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in thy name? 
cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works in thy name. And he looks at those people, and there will be multitudes of them. He said, many will say unto me those things. And I will profess unto them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Folks, the most dangerous thing about Christianity is believing you're saved when you're not. That's the most dangerous thing in the world. Let me tell you why. Because as long as you think you're saved, you can't get saved. Now, do I have to say that again? As long as you think you're saved, you can't get saved if you're lost. As a matter of fact, if you suggest to somebody because of their life and what they choose to do in life that they're not saved, they get mad with you and never speak to you again. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm glad when I first came to this church, the preaching in this church did not hesitate to appraise me of what this book teaches. And that's why I say to you that the scariest book I've ever read in my life is this Bible right here. Because it's scary. Let me tell you what's scary. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will profess unto them, depart from me, I never knew you. If that doesn't get you off alone with God, to cry out to him and say, Lord, I heard what the preacher said one time when he said you can be wrong about a lot of things in life, but you don't want to be wrong about this one because eternity is eternity. It's forever. Folks, that's the scariest thought I've ever had in my life. And you do not want to go through this life without the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Because without it, you're none of his. That's what the Bible teaches. But what does that mean? Well, we're going to see it with the woman at the well. We'll see it. Uh, the spirit of man, we looked at this at Cottage Prayer Meeting the other night. Let, let's, let's look at it. Uh, Proverbs chapter 20. Um, I think it was Art that asked us to take a look at that chapter. And there's some things that are said in it that do not, on the surface, make a lot of sense until you think about it. And so... That's what we try to do. We try to sit there and look over verses and make sense out of it. But look at verse 27 of Proverbs chapter 20. <coughs> the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, if somebody came up to you and said, uh, what does that mean? Would you be able to give them an answer? Well, think about it. Read it again with me. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means to me when I read it. And if it makes sense to you, then use it. If you can make better sense out of it, <laughs> come and tell me about it uh, so I can understand it better. I don't claim to know uh, but what little the Lord seems to make clear in my mind, but I'll tell you what I think it is. I have taught here in times past that the innermost self of a person 
the innermost self of a person is their thought life. And the thought life is really just another way of speaking about the spirit of a man. It's the very thought life of a man. And where did that spirit come from? Well, God created it. Why did he create it? Because God would use it as a, a means of communing with man. God communes with us within the innermost self. And we're going to see this in John chapter 4. So you're going to have to follow this closely to get it. But you remember what the Lord said to the woman at the well? He said, they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Well, what was he saying? He was saying, I don't want a surface relationship with you, a flesh relationship with you. I don't want you to just look at me and say, oh, that's Jesus Christ. I know what he looks like. He doesn't look at us on the outward appearance. What does God look on? He looks on the heart. That's what he looks at. And he's telling that woman at the well, they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Well, what is that spirit? It's the candle of the Lord that he puts in man. Well, what, what does he do with that candle? Well, it's just a little candle. Just a little old tiny light. But inside that heart is a huge universe that is unknown. Have you ever noticed how when you light a candle in a room, it only illuminates what's right there in front of it. But it doesn't light up the whole room. Have you ever noticed that? And so your inclination is to pick up the candle and move it to this place and this place and this place. Whatever the area of interest is in that room, you move the candle over to where that is, then you look at it, then you can see it and see what it is. And so what God is doing is he, he enters into our life and he's interested in our innermost self. He wants to get us where to make a difference and what we do not understand is how dark it is inside it's dark it's a dark place it's full of iniquity it's full of sin God is light but man is darkness light came into the world and darkness comprehended it not John chapter 1 and so God's method for bringing us to a point of understanding, Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, if you do not have the spirit of Christ, you're none of his. Let me tell you something. When you have the spirit of Christ in you, your whole body is full of light. You see everything. You see everything. But we're not like that when we're first coming to know the Lord. Kind of like the woman at the well. She had no idea. And so God comes in to her life. He intervenes. He enters into her life. And he begins to penetrate her. He goes into her mind. And those words go down into her heart. And she begins to look around and see stuff. And he says, uh, go call your husband. Bring him here. And she's looking around and she realizes, I don't have a husband. Well, that was a dark black sin. She was living in sin. She was living sort of with a, a willful uh, ignorance of who she was as a person. She was a harlot. That's what she was. 
But she didn't want to think of herself as a harlot. And so she lived like a lot of people, a secret life. I mean, who knows what we're all about? God does. He said, go call your husband. All of a sudden, the Lord was bringing to her consciousness the fact that there's a lot of dirt in this room, a lot of dirt. Move that candle over there and take a look at it. And here's the first thing I want you to look at. You're a harlot. You're living with a man. As a matter of fact, you've lived with five of them. And none of them are your husband. And the person you're living with right now is not your husband. And all of a sudden, the Lord takes the candle, the spirit of a person, and he begins to illuminate it with his spirit. And that's what he does. When he pours his spirit it's kind of like the ten virgins, you know. They had lamps, but it didn't have any oil. Five of them didn't. But five of them did. And because of the light, because there was light in them, because their spirit that was in them was illumined by the message of God, they went out to meet him when the midnight call was made, which was the signs of the times that the bridegroom is coming. The bridegroom is coming. And those that had oil in their lamps, that's just another way, another figure for understanding the significance of Proverbs chapter 20 and uh, verse 27. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, in this church, we've learned that the belly is God's symbolism for the will of man. The belly usually has to do with what we hunger for. Well, what do we hunger for? Well... My wife and I go out to eat quite a bit uh, for various reasons, but we do that. And the thing that we deal with the most is, well, what do we want? What do we want to eat? What do we want to eat? And so the belly is really symbolic of what you want. It has to do with the human will. That's what it has to do with. God wants us to search that out. What do you want? I've learned this as well in the course of my life. When people are upset, when they're troubled about many things, and you sit down to talk with them about it, a lot of times they do not want to really, <clears throat> they seem to not know what's going on and why they're not happy and why they're so sad, and they're just, they're miserable, and they want somebody to help them get out of that state of mind. And I've, I learned, uh, really through my own misfortunes, uh, to ask myself this question, Dwight, what is it that you want? And I discovered that the reason I was miserable at any point in life is because I wanted something and couldn't get it. There's something I wanted to be different. And I sort of felt like that if I had that difference that I was looking for, if I could just sort of bring that into my life, then I could be happy. And... I discovered that that was the very root of my problem. Because what I wanted had nothing to do with what God wanted. And I didn't have the good sense to realize that I was living a self-centered life. Where the will of God was not in my interest. Except in a certain comfort zone. In other words, 
I'll come to church, hear the preaching, listen to what the Lord is, you know, what the Bible is saying and so forth, but I'm not going to let God get too close to me because if he gets too close to me, he might convert me. And I don't want to be converted. Folks, there's a lot of Christians that do not want to be converted. And they're living a miserable life. I know because I've done it. Sure have. Genuinely saved, but genuinely not converted as a Christian to be totally surrendered to the Lord. There was something I wanted to hold back. There were things that I wanted, and I wanted to mix it up. And the Lord told me. And James, well, if you want to live that way, you're just going to live a double-minded life, and you're going to be unstable in all your ways. And you'll never be able to get up and consistently be happy. You'll never be able to enter into what I meant when I said be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Well, why are people anxious? I can tell you why. It's because there's things we want. And we got people and circumstances in the way of it. And we're trying through our own providence to change people and circumstances so that the problems go away. Well, we're not big enough to do that. Now, I don't know about you, but I... I came to a certain point in my life that I was absolutely exhausted and fed up with being miserable. And I try every day, I don't always succeed, but I try every day to practice being anxious for nothing. Anxious for nothing. I had a firearms class yesterday with 15 people. I thought I was going to have 20. Five of them, different emergency kind of things came up. The forecast was 100% rain. It might be a little bit difficult for you to enter into this, uh, but I... Fair weather is really appreciated when you have a gun glass because it makes it so much easier, so much easier. And I, I looked at the weather report, and every day was clear this past week, but in the forecast, there's only one day that it was going to rain, and it started out, it started out saying 80%. The next day I looked at it, it was 90%. And Saturday morning I looked at the WRAL and it was 100% rain. <clears throat> and so I talked with Pat about, you know, what kind of day we we're going to run into. And so I tried to make all kinds of preparation for it. And one of the things, I'm just going to give you some private thoughts here in a way uh, I don't think it's wrong uh, but for two years I've had gun classes sometimes two a month and it has never rained in two years and it didn't rain yesterday and so what I do is I go to, to the Lord and I say Lord it doesn't matter to me whether it rains or not. But it's one thing that I know. You're the God of heaven in total and complete control of the physical realm. The physical realm. Every atom, every electron, neutron, every blade of grass that's out there, every hair that is on my head, Every politician, promotion comes only from the Lord. He sets up one and he takes down another. 
And he is the one that can shut up the heavens that it rain not. And he is the same one that could speak and even the winds and the waves would obey him. And I know what the experience is to be anxious for nothing and say, Lord, they're saying 100%. But I'm not going to be anxious about it whatsoever because if it pours rain, you're going to know about it. And somehow or other, whether I understand it or not, it'll be your will. And I am delighted if it pours rain. I don't care. <coughs> the only thing that I care about is your will being done. I'm telling you, folks, if you will begin to practice what I just said, it'll change your life. It will absolutely change your life. Now, I, I told you a while ago, it, sometimes you can give the impression that you're a spiritual person. Let me put a good grip. I want to, you to get a good grip on what I'm saying. I don't live like this constantly. Sometimes I become anxious, but it's short-lived. Why? Because I have learned that if I'm going to be anxious for nothing, I've got to get alone with God every day. First thing. And I've got to get him to light my candle. And let me look around inside my own mind and my own heart to see a little better what Dwight is really all about. Because what he's all about is himself. That's what he's all about. And I'll tell you this, I think you're just like me. I think we're all alike. That's all we really care about. There are things down here in this church and this ministry that people could be a part of and more a part of if they would allow the Lord to pour his Holy Spirit onto that candle and light it up so that they could really see why do we live? Why do we exist? Do we exist because of some will of ours? If we could have what we want, then that would actually stack up as being of great value in eternity? Folks, no, it won't. And I'll tell you what we're stacking up, and just what a lot of Christians are stacking up, is wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble won't mean a thing. And God is going to try every man's work and what it is they're out there trying to accomplish in their life. He's going to try it with fire. And the only thing that's going to survive the fire is the gold and the silver. The gold and the silver. The precious stones. Those things are going to endure for all eternity to come. But you see, all throughout the Bible, the Lord is teaching us that he is the treasure. He is the gold. He is the silver. He is the precious stones. He sure is. But we don't want to really think too carefully about this because it might it might get in the way of what we think is going to make us happy. And this is where this woman at the well was living. I've been there. I know what it's like to be at that well. I know what it's like to go with my empty water pot. And 
run it down in some well somewhere to bring up some kind of water that I wanted, water that I wanted. Well, if you read carefully the passage, after she met Christ, she left her water pot. She forgot all about her water pot. You know why? Because the Lord gave her living water that would spring up into everlasting life. She didn't need a water pot. She had everything. These are some of the things that we're going to see as we go through this chapter, but I wanted to give you sort of a, a big picture overview of where some of these thoughts go. But um, there are ten musts that you'll find. If you take your cell phone, if you've got one of those, and you have uh, an eSword app in it, and you just type the word must in it, you will find that there are 10 musts recorded in John's gospel, 10 of them. That's the number of perfect service. I've learned that from Pastor Kelly's Bible symbolism, perfect service. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all live that way in the world, perfect service to God. Well, it's possible when we really enter into the true meaning of Pentecost, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ being your life, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, I'm dead. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live, I live by the faith, listen to this, the faith of the Son of God, not my faith, his. It's all over the Bible. I just love that particular line of reasoning and understanding that God has made available to us here in this church. If you live with your faith, you'll always have an element of doubt. If you live with the faith that God has in himself, it'll always be absolute. Always. That's the kind we need. And that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 2.20. I live by the faith. The faith of the Son of God. Not his faith. It's top-down faith. Not bottom-up faith. That's a good way to, I think, help people understand it. Because if you live in this world with bottom-up faith, you're going to be anxious every day of your life. Every day. You'll never have an expected end. The only way you can have an expected end, I think that's what, Jeremiah 29 and verse 11, isn't it? I'm not sure, I think. God wants us to live in this world with an expected end. And the only way that you can do that is with top-down faith, the faith of Jesus Christ. So there are ten musts, and I'm going to go over these real quick. The first one is in John chapter 3, where he said you must be born again. He's talking to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And then he spoke about in the same chapter how the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's another must. He must go to the cross of Calvary and die because there was no other way for us to make reparation for the damage we had done to God the Father. Uh, I can't believe this. You mean to tell me it's almost quarter till? That's unreal. Um, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist said that. There's two musts right there. He must needs go through Samaria. That's chapter 4. 
He told the woman in chapter 4 that she must worship him in spirit and in truth. You must. Innermost self in spirit, the candle of the Lord. John chapter 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. That's God's way of letting you know that unless he works, fulfilling his father's business, going to the cross of Calvary, dying in our place, we go to hell forever. Salvation is of the Lord. No man cometh to, the, to me, uh, cometh to the Father but by me. And neither is there salvation in any other. So that's why he must work while it is day. Not us, him. Because there's coming a time when he's not going to work anymore. In anybody's life. And the door is going to be shut, just like on the ark. It's going to be too late. And so there's such a thing as the day when God is working, and God is at work right now in people's minds and hearts all over the world. The day, right now. He's at work. You don't want to get in the way of that. Because no one can work this work but him. You can't. No one can. It's just him. And so this is the exclusiveness of the work of Christ. Uh, folks, if I keep on going, I'll just I, I'll lose sense of time again. And we'll have to come back next week and take a look at it. Benny, dismiss us, brother. Thank you.